Uh, a few weeks ago, the Lord impressed these verses upon my heart from the book of Colossians. And uh, I, I just felt very strongly from the Spirit that this needs to kind of be our foundational principle uh, for this year. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. What we're going to see over the next few weeks is, is kind of a, a parallel, kind of uh, similar to what we studied in our Fresh Fruit study, uh, series this summer. But I believe it's very beneficial for us um, to lay this out as personal and church goals for 2012. They aren't resolutions because resolutions are very easy to break and we kind of make them half-heartedly and I'm going to lose my 30 pounds this year and I really do need to do that, so help me with that. But um, those are kind of hopeful promises that we know probably by April will be broken or maybe by tomorrow. Um, and, and this is not really a, a vision per se because that tends to be a very significant goal that may or may not be realized. What the Spirit is laying out here in Colossians 2, and we're going to look at verses 6 to 7 this morning, this is simply the normal expectation that the Lord has for believers. So we don't need to see this as some uh, distant target, something that we, that we uh, have before us that's extraordinary, that we have to pursue, and that's going to be a major effort. This is the, the normal, distinctive characteristics of a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ. And you're going to hear those words a lot this morning. You're going to hear the word mature and you're going to hear the word disciple. Because as a church, that's our goal. That every single person that comes to Harbor Rock will be a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ. That you're growing in your faith, that you're following Christ, that you're living for the Lord, that you love the Lord. So this study this morning is going to be a little different. It's going to be very practical because the text is practical. It's going to be very basic, very fundamental. Fundamentals are a good thing, right? As we start a new year, that's kind of the time that we review and we've had the craziness of Christmas and we're back to, ah, ah, okay, now it's January 1 and, and the Christmas lights will come down and we're kind of back to normal. All right, well, let's refocus because in the middle of May, we're not going to want to talk about the fundamentals. This is the time we do it. So I believe this text, these words from the Spirit here in chapter 2, Perfect for today. Let's read it. Now, I don't want to just start you in verse 6 because there's context here. So let's start in verse 1, develop just for a minute what Paul's leading into, and then we'll actually read a verse past verse 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, speaking to the church in Colossae, and for those who are at Laodicea. We know Laodicea, how much trouble they had with being lukewarm. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Don't miss that phrase because that is one of the most wonderful things you can hear this morning. That our hearts this morning are full of wealth because we have the full assurance of understanding that Christ saved us. Somebody say amen. All right. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, in other words, I'm telling you all this, this is my struggle, concerned about you, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline 
and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, here are our verses. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, there's probably no book in the New Testament that is more pertinent to today, more relevant to the time that we live in and the battles that we're facing as believers than the book of Colossians. Paul never visited this church. He did not know the people face to face. So you can see back in verse 5, he says, I'm not with you, I'm absent in the body. And yet he knew about what was going on in Colossae because other believers had come to where he was and told him, here's what's happening in this town. All the cities were bunched up in Asia Minor. Maybe next week I'll bring a map and show you. Everything was together, Laodicea, Ephesus, Colossae, Pergamon. They were, they were all tightly knit into this little area of what's now Turkey. So, so all these cities were there, and, and the word gets back to Paul, here's what's happening in Colossae. Now, the biggest threat in that city at that time came from Gnosticism. Gnosticism you've probably heard about before. It, it was the belief that intuitive knowledge leads to salvation. So most Gnostics, because they believe salvation came with, from within, from learning, they denied Christ. Gnosticism was a dangerous uh, combination of self-importance based on the belief that truth comes from within, and also a mix of religions, kind of a, 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 a potpourri. You pick whatever ones you want, whatever makes sense to you, whatever will guide you to truth, let that kind of be part of it because there are multiple paths to God and multiple paths to salvation. It's very similar to what we see today. We almost live now in, in a Gnostic culture where truth is treated very subjectively and, and Jesus Christ is marginalized. In fact, most of the Gnostics said that Jesus Christ could not have been God because God would not come as a man. So uh, Jesus was just another guy who was trying to pursue gnosis, who was trying to pursue knowledge. So this was a, a serious threat to the church in Colossae, and Paul writes them, and he's kind of warning them about the aberrant danger of this philosophical way of thinking. And in warning them, he also wants to teach them solid theology. He also wants to tell them, look, these are the ways to combat this, and the way you combat it is by focusing on Christ. He understood that there would be a rising hostility toward Christianity because when we say Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came, we just sang it, he's the one who, who came to earth, he is the one who saves us, the Bible is the infallible word of God, it's the, the guidebook of truth, and that, and that he is the only way that we can come to God. When they hear that, Paul knows the Gnostics are going to say you're crazy. And they're not just going to dismiss the Christians, they're going to fight against the Christians and try to destroy them. So this book, Colossians, long introduction, but you need to know this. This book is the most Christ-centered epistle that Paul ever wrote. Everything about Colossians centers on Christ. 
He explains the person and work of Christ. He talks about the balance of his deity and his humanity. He talks about him as creator and sustainer and sovereign and all-sufficient and the only Savior. All of this is about Christ. If you want a book just to, to sit down and study the first part of 2012, get in Colossians because it will teach you about Christ. Now, that being said, remember that this is a highly relevant book for our times. And the situation that the Colossians lived in is very similar to what we live in. The pressure for Christians to conform to philosophy and conform to, to pluralism of, of faith is the same that they faced. So it's very fascinating, knowing all that background, that the Spirit writes these two verses because they're at the heart of this letter. They're the central theme of what the Spirit of God wants us to know about how to live in this culture. If you want a best response to the times we live in, it's Colossians 2, 6, and 7. This is the ideal. This is the, the, the statement that God makes that says, you want to know how to live in 2012? These two verses will tell you. Now, there are four spiritual principles. We're going to look at two this morning that instruct us how to advance in spiritual maturity. And I want to say to you right now, and I'm including myself in this, spiritual maturity, growing in faith, advancing in our, in our love and our devotion and our, and our desire for the Lord is the need of every single person in this room. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved. This year, let's see if I can do the math real quick. This year will mark 38 years I've been saved. 38 years, doesn't matter. You may be saved 38 days. Every single person in this room needs to advance in spiritual maturity. doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your last name is, doesn't matter where you've ministered, where you've gone to church, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us in this coming year needs to mature in our faith and in our walk. And I pray that every single one of us, from the, from the new believer to the seasoned vet, will have a strong passion for personal spiritual maturation in 2012, because this is going to be a huge year. It's going to be a huge year in our nation's history. It's going to be a huge year for this church. What's going to happen in the next 11 to 12 months will, will determine a lot really about the future of our nation. I'm not being political this morning. I'm just saying there is great potential for economic uh, hardship. There is great potential for freedom and spiritual expression to, to be uh, repressed, uh, to be under attack. Uh, there's potential for uh, the, the freedom of Christianity to, to be limited. This is a huge year, I believe, for our church. There are new challenges. There are new opportunities. There's going to be more opportunity to study the Word. There's going to be a greater emphasis on prayer. We have ministry to done, be done. We have souls to reach. And I'm going to lay out some new initiatives in the next few weeks, but, but there is always the potential in this new year for a building, for new ministries, for new people to come to the church, for more staff, for more events. Listen, special services, Christmas Eve, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we can do to reach people with the gospel. And we need to have an emphasis on inviting people. Everybody in this new year needs to invite somebody. Not because we're trying to swell the room. I don't care about that. I do care about us growing because we're reaching people for Christ. I care about us growing because we're sharing our faith. I care about us growing because people around us are hurting, and they're needing the Savior. And we know the Savior. 
If you knew something good, you wouldn't want to withhold it from somebody. Well, we know something wonderful, don't we? So it's time for us to start actively saying to people, you need to know the Lord. Now, how do we prepare ourselves for that? If this is such a huge year, how do we prepare? Because we can't effectively advance and minister to people as a church body unless each of us is maturing spiritually. So that's where, all right, introduction's all done. That's half the message anyway. let's, Let's look at what the Spirit's saying to us very practically. And I want you to start back in verse 6 because it's so simple. As you have received Christ, in other words, the premise is, this is a believer that's reading this and receiving this. As you have received Christ, tell me the next four words. So walk in Him. Christ is the Savior Christ is the Lord, and everything is centered around Him. Faith is the catalyst, and maturation is the expectation. As you have received Christ, I pray everybody's done that, then walk in Him. And then verse 7 lays out four logical characteristics that should be fulfilled in our lives. Let's start with the first one. Having been firmly rooted. Underline that if you underline your Bible or write it in your notes or do something that marks that. Having been firmly rooted. This is the only verb out of the four that's past tense. So this is describing the work of spiritual transformation at salvation. When we are changed, our nature's changed, we're conformed to Christ, the Holy Spirit is implanted in our hearts and in our characters. Having been, in other words, God has taken you from wandering and floundering and being like a tumbleweed in the spiritual wilderness, having been now firmly rooted, one-time action. But there's also a sense in that of continuation. In other words, yes, God's planted you, but, but that's not the end. There's going to be more. So, so you've been firmly rooted by Christ. You're in Christ. You're saved. You're secure. You're you're Christ forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You're going to heaven. Wonderful. But it doesn't stop there. So having been firmly rooted, but continue on in that. Make sure that the roots stay deep and firm in the spiritual soil. It's like he says in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in the season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever it does, he prospers. In other words, you're planted, but stay planted. Now we have to fight a continual war against spiritual shallowness. And it's easy as a believer, I don't know why it just is, for us not to continue to dig the the roots deeper because everybody knows that a healthy tree, the roots keep going down and down. So when you see a tornado or a hurricane and it knocks over one of those big trees, you've seen that on the news, right? And, And the roots are massive. Well, that should be us. The roots should be down deep. But for some reason, as believers sometimes, we get saved and then it's just, well, I'm just going to stay shallow. And we're going to have to fight that. And in the new year, I would encourage you, become a nonconformist. 
Become a nonconformist. Fight against the trends of Christianity of the last 20 years. Now, I ran across an interesting article the other day. And a respected Christian writer, you know how this happens at the end of the year, he, he gave his opinion on the 10 trends that he expects to take hold in the next few years. And I was so excited for the first time in years by what I read. Because 9 out of the 10, and 1 is negative, 9 out of the 10 have been our priorities. Because they are biblical priorities, they're discipleship-oriented, and they're church-centered. People that live by the Bible are going to be non-conformists, so get used to it. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? So you and I, we have to be non-conformists. Let me summarize just the main points of what he sees happening. He believes the church will become more diverse and less homogeneous, which means that the church growth movement that said churches should just be made up of similar people. We'll have church for the 20s, and we'll have church for the 40s, and we'll have church for the 60s. There aren't many churches for the 60s. It's more or less just be the churches for the 20s. He says that's going to lessen, and churches are going to become more non-segregated. How many know that's a good thing? Number two, which is the only negative, he believes church attendance will continue to decline, not by the amount of people that attend church, but by how frequently they attend. Third, he believes churches will become more theologically conservative. I say amen to that one. He believes deep teaching will become more popular as people get tired of spiritual shallowness. He believes that ministry to boomers, that's those of us, sadly, that are 47 to 65. Now I'm in that group. Isn't that exciting? That, That ministry to us will greatly expand as they get more involved. He believes ministry to families will increase. The number one priority of the millennial generation, 16 to 31, is family. They want to be connected to family, and that includes extended family and church family. He believes, seven, the church staff positions will evolve from specialized to covering multiple ministries all around an emphasis on discipleship. Eighth, he says the importance of the church building will be renewed as people see a priority in the body coming together for community and, again, for discipleship and spiritual maturation. And this is one the Lord may be leading us to. I don't know. I don't have any plans. I don't have my eye on a building. I don't know what the Lord's doing. But this may be one the Lord's leading us to in this year. So we need to start praying about that. Number nine, he says leadership will become less based on the charisma of the leader to attract people. In other words, the pastor is a celebrity and more on authenticity, as well as the church's ability to develop and train people and be focused on a local mission. In other words, Acts 2, very personal. And number 10, he says, the use of multiple video venues, that's a hard word to say, will slow down. In other words, these churches that have nine different locations and they beam in the pastor on the video and there's nobody, there's no local pastor, he says that's going to wane. People's desire for a pastor who teaches them live, who connects with them personally, will increase. Now, if you think about that, if he's right, you hear in that a stronger emphasis on deeper teaching and on spiritual growth and on a push by the church to connect together and to be discipled. And I say, fabulous. Fabulous, because that's what Acts 2 was. And that can only be done by having an emphasis 
on the Word of God. So I want to encourage you, in 2012, become a fresh student of God's Word. Become a student of God's Word. I mean, we've now got to push back all the stuff, all the information, all the overload, and we've got to start to become students of God's words. And I want to present you with a challenge today that some of you aren't going to like. I don't mean it offensively. I'm just suggesting it, okay? Everybody know that that's my premise. This is a suggestion, not a demand. How many say, okay? Okay, good. I'm just glad you're awake. If you're not doing it already, I want to encourage you in the new year to get back to the purity of having a Bible open with a pen and a paper and studying it and taking notes and taking time and allowing the Spirit to teach you and impress fresh application on your heart. Some of you have never done that. Some of you don't know how to do that because that's not how you were raised. And very soon we're going to offer a course that's going to tell you how to do that and teach you the joy of doing that. We've got to find the time. We've got to make a way to do that because it is such a joyful experience to rightly divide the word of truth. And it gives you a greater depth of knowledge and it gives you strength in your faith and it guides you to greater spiritual maturity. I, I worked at a church once where I was trying to push through a more thorough discipleship plan and get people deeper into the word. And somebody in leadership said to me, well, we don't want people to just be intellectual. And I was just dumbfounded by that. I thought, really? Why not? It's not like we're at risk of that in Christianity. Now, I got the point. We don't want just deep, knowledgeable, wise Christians who don't have any heart and love. But let's work on developing deep, wise, knowledgeable Christians in the first place. Then we'll worry about whether we've got enough love for them. I I think this is such a, 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 a lack in the American church. And listen, I love technology. It is an absolutely astounding way to to live life, and it's given us much easier information, and we have ways to process things, and it makes life a lot easier. I will admit to you that I'm a little bit nostalgic for, for the old days when there wasn't quite so much available, because when there's so much available, it makes us a little bit numb and, and, and unappreciative of context. And, and it makes us more and more impatient, which you know is not something that needs to happen in my life. I don't need to become more impatient. But technology and availability makes us impatient. If I'm on, i got a little iPod touch for Christmas, and if it doesn't load right away, I'm like, come on. Oh, it took three seconds. <gasps> Now, three seconds of my life, I don't get back. Remember the days of actually reading books? I read a book over Christmas. It was fun. I just read. Now, within our faith and within our study, the danger of too much technology can be that it drives us and it strips us of the purity of study and listening and learning. So here's my challenge to you in 2012, and I hope you'll receive it in the way that it's intended. In the new year, let's de-technologize a bit. I know that's not a word. I just made it up. All right? Let's de-technologize a little bit. Let's cut back a little bit. Because it is stunting spiritual growth and it's stunting relationships. 
How many times you go into a restaurant or you go into a public place and everybody's sitting at the table on their technology? And nobody's talking. We did it this winter. Everybody's oh, angry birds and play with this and look at this and check my email. And, and everybody's looking at a screen. And you're right across from each other. I've even seen a comic in the newspaper. I know it's old school, but I still read a newspaper in my hands, not online. There's an ongoing comic about these two guys that are sitting across each other. And, and, and the one guy says, you know what? We should get together. And the guy says, I'm sitting right across from you. Oh, that's brilliant. That's true. I read another article in the newspaper. I know, I'm just radical this week. And the article in the newspaper predicted that in the next few years, there's going to be a wave of Generation Y people. That's people in their 20s who I'm jealous of. There's going to be a wave of Generation Y people who become disenchanted with the prevalence of technology and social media and are going to unplug. Almost like a technological rebellion. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I can see why it might become true. And that's not, again, a criticism or an attack on technology. It's not a desire to be archaic. We want to be relevant and current and technologically advanced. But I believe that, that if we keep relying on it so heavily, it's going to hurt relationships. It's going to affect our families. It's going to impact our church family. So here's my second encouragement. You're not going to like this. I want to encourage you, and many of you already do this, and I'm so encouraged by it. And I'm not being critical if you don't. Just hear my heart this morning. I want to encourage you in the new year to carry your Bible to church. The actual book. You know why? Because your kids need to see you open your Bible. Your kids need to see you holding your Bible in your hands. So we haven't demanded this, we won't demand this, but I want you to resist using your iPhone, iPad, iWhatever, just when you're in this room. Bring your Bible, take notes, write ideas to research later. Now you say, well, Paul, the technology is wonderful, and I can click on the Word, and, and there it pops up, and there's a lexicon. And Listen, that's great, and I think that's wonderful, and I think it's amazing we can do that. I don't have to cart around all those commentaries and lexicons and stuff that I have that I'm still going to hold to because I like the books. That's fabulous for your personal study. But be aware that when you use technology to study the Bible, many times you miss the context. And many times you miss what you find as you're turning the page. Oh, I forgot. I want to read that real quick as I turn over to that. Sometimes you miss the rest of what the Lord wants to teach you because it's easy to punch in Hosea 4.1. There, boom, got it. There's what the word means, there's what that means, there's three commentaries on it, there I'm done. That was my study. And you don't take it and say, what does that verse mean? Reading it four or five times, looking at the words, then you use the technology, break it down. What does that word mean in the Greek? What's that word mean in the Hebrew? That's the kind of study you want to do. Now I know this is radical and I know it's nonconformist, but the most important thing we have to do as we study, listen now, is hear from the Holy Spirit. Not make it as easy as possible. How many know that the Christian walk in faith aren't always what's easiest? And it is so much more important to be in God's way of thinking than to be in Steve Jobs' way of thinking. 
Let's memorize scripture. Let's learn the books of the Bible. Listen, if you're going to take the Bible study methods class, are you going to be part of family camp? You're going to have to learn the books of the Bible this year. So start now. We need to know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You say, well, Paul, I don't need to do that. I can punch two buttons on my iPad and it's there. Yeah, you can, but I want you to know the books of the Bible. That's basic Christianity. Learn those books. Have a hunger for God's word. I said this to Jacob as we were driving home. He had a hockey game on Friday, and, and the team kind of came out, and they were kind of passionless and lackluster. They were playing a big stadium, so maybe they were overwhelmed by that. But we were talking about it on the way home, and I said, you guys need to, you need to out-hustle and outwork the other team. You need to be hungry for every puck. When that puck's near the net, you need to drive toward the net. And then I came back and studied Colossians, and I thought, that's exactly the spiritual principles of 2, 6 to 7. Hustle. Outwork the enemy this year. Be hungry for the word of God. Desire the spirit. Drive toward the finish line because the author and finisher of our faith is standing there waiting for us. So instead of just kind of lackluster new year, kind of do the same thing, get to the end of the year, not really different. Let's, let's out-hustle the enemy. Let's outwork him. Let's make it our passion to be more like Christ. And Christ needs to be our focus. We need to learn more about Christ study his life and his example, our thinking can become so self-absorbed with what we want to study and what makes us feel good and what's relevant. But listen, we need to start learning again about Jesus. We need to learn about Jesus. That song we sang this morning talked about his name, about knowing how great he is. There's an old song that's called More, More About Jesus. I pulled it up in my hymn book. Yes, I still have one of those. Listen to the lyrics. More about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn, more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More about Jesus in his word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every line, making each faithful saying mine. More about Jesus on his throne, riches and glory all his own. More of his kingdom sure increase, more of his coming prince of peace. More, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Why do we need more of Jesus? Look back at verses 2 and 3. It says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you say, all right, why do I need wisdom and knowledge? Look at the next verse, verse 4. We need it so no one will delude us with persuasive arguments that misuse and distort God's word or just flat out contradict God's word. Why do we need to know Jesus? Because in Jesus is all wisdom and knowledge. Why do we need wisdom and knowledge? Because the world is de deluging us with persuasive arguments why he doesn't matter. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. In other words, you can be hostage, you can be in bondage through philosophy and empty deception according to tradition or elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Twice the Spirit says to us, there's deception going on. There's danger around you. You need to be careful, believer. You need to watch out. Stay close to the Word. Listen to His Spirit. Don't get deceived. Rooted in Him. 
Now, the verb tense changes. Verse 7, let's deal with the last one. We'll pray. Paul now says, now that you know this, now that you know that the roots need to go deep, what do you need to do now? Second characteristic of a strong and faithful believer is that we need to be built up in him. The tree can't grow unless it's rooted. If the roots are shallow, the tree dies. So he says, be built up in him. This is the principle of spiritual maturation. That should be the emphasis, and it will be the emphasis of our ministry. That every disciple of Jesus Christ advances in knowledge, that we're strengthened in our faith, and that we have a personal ministry of building each other up so that we're encouraged in our faith and our walk too. That has to become your priority and my priority. Make your life and this church a place of constant love and edification personally and spiritually. Paul never met these people. And yet when he sends this letter, he sent it with Epaphras. Epaphras was the perfect choice. Paul doesn't send Timothy. He doesn't send John Mark. He doesn't send Luke. He sends Epaphras because Epaphras was an encourager. And this little church in a dying town was under spiritual attack. And Paul says, I'm going to send Epaphras with this letter to challenge you and teach you and encourage you and urge you and assist you and guide you to mature in your faith. I believe over the next year we need to embrace an Epaphras principle. We need to use our resources as believers who are growing and maturing in our faith to encourage and strengthen each other. We need to be aware of the power of our words. We need to be aware that everything we say, positive or negatively, makes an impact. And we need to make it a priority to be encouragers and edifiers. That being said, guard against gossip. Resist talking about people when they're not around and keep each other accountable for that. Speak words of encouragement to your spouse and your kids. Compliment them. Not just shallow words, oh, you look great today, and oh, that was great, thanks for doing that, it was a nice dinner, and walking away. I mean, really encourage and strengthen them. Build them up. Show them love and respect and sacrifice. Remember back to the days when you are courting? Remember how you always wanted to be the one to give in so they'd be happy? What happened to that? You remember it, right? Somebody nod. Yeah. Oh, man. Started dating my wife. I did everything for her. I was always, oh, man. I was just constantly complimenting her. She was so beautiful. Oh, man. I just loved her so much. Has something changed that I missed? We have to be speaking words of encouragement. You know, remember the days when, when you were yielding? No, you do it. No, you do it. No, you no, no, you do it. No, it's so cute. We're on the phone for 16 hours because nobody wants to hang up. No, let's go where you want to go. No, I'm going to go where you want to go. No, no. And it was like this battle to see who could give on. Have you had one of those lately? I don't want to go there. We start to get a deeper tone of voices as we grow older, even the ladies. What if in the new year you were the first one to yield? Oh, wait, wait, Paul, 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 my spouse is going to take advantage of me. All right, I do counseling. Well, Paul, it'll make me look weak. Good. 
sacrifice, it's not weakness. It's, it's love. It's strength. Be the first to yield. You know why? Because we're supposed to love each other the way Christ loved us. And Christ didn't hold back. He didn't say, oh, you do it first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait for us. He initiated it. There was no selfishness. There was no manipulation. He didn't have an angle. He just wanted to love us. So when we talk to our spouse and when we talk to our kids and we talk to our church family, let's watch the way we talk. Let's stop being condescending. Let's watch the way we have an attitude. Let's stop being critical. Look at the way Jesus talked to his disciples even when they aggravated him. With your kids, encourage and praise them first instead of finding fault. I, I do that a lot. I make that mistake. That's harder. It's not always as gratifying, but it comes out of pride. We want to be right, and we want to be the boss, and we want to be the one that says, I'm the authority. Listen, you are the authority. You still have the wild card of grounding them, so you're the authority. You can take away the keys. You can turn off the Internet. You know a lot of things as a parent. You don't need to throw around your authority. Just encourage. And that will strengthen them. And it will build them up rather than tearing them down. Genuinely take an interest in other people, believer and non-believer. Don't be quick to speak and slow to listen. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says be slow to speak and quick to listen. Listen with a third ear. What are people really saying? What are they disclosing? People will disclose far more than you think if you just ask a couple questions. I had a conversation with a couple guys last night. I said, I've watched my parents over the years, and, and they're in a lot of situations where they have to carry a conversation, and I have learned from them something very key. The more you ask questions, the more people open up. And you're not doing that as ammunition. Well, I want to gather some intel on this person so I can use it against them later. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, how can I care about you more deeply? How can I minister to you more effectively? How can I pray more specifically for you? By finding out what's going on in your life. And make it a priority that we're going to help people become more spiritually mature and strong. Listen, discipleship's not a program. I'm not going to roll out a discipleship program. The greatest discipleship program is that you and I are deeply rooted and that we're maturing in our faith and that we're building and edifying one another. Acts 2 was widespread discipleship and you never see the disciples roll out a discipleship plan. They met together daily and they broke bread and they studied the word and they prayed. Guess what? That's discipleship. Strengthen each other. All right, let's stop there. We're going to look at the last part of verse 7 next week. But the first part of the challenge, listen just for a second more, is that we start this, you and me. Now, we all love to be on the ground floor as something unique and special. When the new iPad or iPhone comes out, we race over. We want to get the first to have the technology. I've seen some of you ladies, when you get the Kohl's coupons in the mail, you know what I'm talking about, right? What's my peel sticker? What are we rooting for, ladies? 30%, right? That's right, 30%. And what happens when you get that 30%? I got to go shopping. Right? Somebody tell me I'm right. All right? So we want to be on the ground floor. We, we want to we be the first to get the good deal. 
I even hold some resentment against people that are bandwagon Packers fans because I suffered through the 60s and 70s and 80s. I remember those days when we won two games in a year. So now, oh, we're 14 and 1. Everybody jumps in the mayor. Stop it. We were here first, right? You know it's true. I'm talking about something far more significant. As we go deeper in our study and we advance in spiritual maturity, we have the opportunity to impact the lives of other people. We have children in this church who need a teacher. We have children who need somebody in the room to assist them in learning and memorizing because those who do it are taxed now. We have people that don't get to church, don't get to come to the service ever or only come one time a month because they're teaching almost every week. I'm not saying that because they've complained. I'm saying that because I want you to be aware of it, that we need to help relieve them. We need to have a rotation of people one or two times a year who will serve doing prayer meeting so everybody can come to prayer meeting. I'm not going to lock anybody in there. Well, every time I have prayer meeting, I've got to be in the nursery. No. If, if we do, we'll, we'll hire some people to be in there. If we're going to get together to pray, I want everybody to be there. You talk about a great challenge. You talk about being cutting edge. What better thing can we do this year than to mature in our faith and help other people mature in their faith? I, I, I can't think of a better goal to set the example of what a mature disciple looks like, to teach and train and develop kids to love the Lord and to be rock solid in their convictions and in their faith. You know why? Because we are. If the author is right, if those ten things that are going to happen in evangelicalism are right, and I don't know about you, but I want to be ahead of the pack. I want to do that first so we can be there ready to minister to people when they say, how do I go deeper in the Lord? How do I get rooted in Christ? They say, we can tell you, it's right here. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you this morning for the beauty of your word, for the strength of your word, for the challenge that your spirit has put before us this morning, that we would be rooted deeply in Christ that we would be built up and strengthened and strengthen each other in our faith. Lord, put that burning passion in our hearts this year. Give us a desire now to be pure students of your word. Desire to be built up and strengthened in our walk. Lord, to move on to that next level of maturity and that next level of faith. Even for those of us that have been saved decades, I pray you would fill us with a hunger for you. I pray as a church, Lord, you'd fill us with a hunger for you, a hunger for your word, a hunger for worship, a hunger for prayer, a hunger to reach people for Christ, to not be insular, but to be external, to go out as you told us to do and reach the world for Christ. Lord, fill us now with wisdom on the ways we can do that. We anticipate, Lord, what you are going to do We want to be expectant on you. Lord, as we do that, we will magnify the name of Jesus Christ, who's our Savior and our Lord. We will declare his name throughout the world. Now give us the wisdom, the strength, the courage, and the ability to do that. We thank you and praise you because you are a faithful and loving God, because you've redeemed us from sin.
because you have secured us forever. Lord, you are wonderful and magnificent and we praise your name. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.